0: I do draw that distinction in the book because I think it's naive to think anybody's going to go out in the world and just go, "Oh, I'm just going to do good and and, you know, I'm not going to think about myself." That's not how we're wired. There's a healthy self-interest. I want to look after my family, I want to pay my mortgage, I want to get ahead, I want to take a holiday, whatever that looks like for you depending on where you are in the world. But at the same time, the line gets blurred with selfishness, which is really I'm this winner-takes-all mentality, which is I'm going to take as much as for myself as I can, irrespective of the consequences. But here's the funny thing about it all. The people that think that they are doing themselves the greatest justice at the expense of others are actually hurting themselves more than anybody else. Hmm. And here's
1: why. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that was we first founder and best-selling author, Simon Mainwaring, who helps us distinguish self-interest from selfishness. On the fifth episode of the Keep It Real series, Mainwaring argues that capitalism doesn't have to be a winner's take-all endgame, the role social media plays in influencing self-interest, and that companies who empower the next generation... Will create more prosperity for all. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the real Simon Mainwaring. Enjoy. Go. Keep it real. Series number five. In five, four, three, two, one. Simon Mainwaring. We're back. How we doing?
0: I'm good, Kevin. How are you? I like that little chat box down there. It says, say something nice. I think we should all say
1: something nice to we all to each other all the time right now. There's it, enough negativity out there. There is. There is. It's much needed, much needed in today's day and age. Now, how are you doing specifically? Thanksgiving's coming up here. We're at the end of 2020. How are you feeling?
0: I am feeling grateful, but like everyone, I think a little bit I was saying earlier on to you, you know, life is like this metronome. It just keeps going backwards and forwards each day. We've pulled our life in completely. We're seeing almost nobody. It's kind of work and my wife, my kids are away. So, you know, we're just staying grateful, staying safe and uh, just realizing that we're in this tough time, but there is another
1: side to it for sure. There is another side. There's always an upside. One of the upsides for me, Simon, has been being alone and staying quarantined with my own thoughts. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes <laughs> that's a bad thing. Alone with my thoughts. thoughts. <laughs> my own thoughts. My sick What's thoughts. your Saturday night plan while
0: I have, uh, have scheduled my thoughts and I are going to have an intense conversation? Yes. Exactly.
1: Well, that's what I want to talk about today, Simon. See, I've, had, I've been yeah. alone. I've had a lot of time on my hands. I just picked up. the. Well, not just picked up. I've been reading it. The We First book, written by you, mm-hmm. Simon Mayweather. Oh, yeah. Now, first question is this: I know I a, a lot of know. authors that write, write a book say day, ten years 10 ago, years nine done. years ago. Uh, when you write a book, you know, let's say a while back, have you had time to think and process, and you know, maybe I should have written that differently, or maybe I was wrong, or what are your thoughts on the book that you, you, you've written so long ago?
0: That's an interesting question I've never been asked. And for those who don't know, I wrote this book called We First, How Brands and Consumers Use Social Media to Build a Better World that came out in 2011. And so the focus very much was on this rising new you know, constellation of platforms. At the time, there was like Facebook and just Twitter, nothing else, no Snap, no Instagram, no TikTok, nothing crazy. So, you know, it really was, well, what could we do with that? And all I would say to your question is, you know, when I look back at it now, the premise of the book was a new vision for capitalism, how we could do things better, because I started writing it just after the global economic meltdown. So, you know, I sort of shied away from going too deep in the bigger picture of business, although I did speak to that directly and really pushed in on, well, what can social media enable us to do? Because it seemed that it allowed us to have this dialogue between institutions and citizens, between brands and consumers What could we do? And, you know, in hindsight now, I might say that um, I probably would have leaned in a little bit more and explained a little bit more about the vision for capitalism implicit in the idea of We First. But there's only 300 pages in a book, 90,000 words. What do you do?
1: So that's never been asked that before. Well, I just found it interesting because, you know, sometimes our thoughts and the knowledge that we have at this point in time does change with, you know, with experience. Now, Simon, your, your background, your experience has been in marketing. You've been studying people, why they make decisions for quite some time. So I found it very interesting when you start this book out, giving the example of Bob, your average typical consumer who makes mm-hmm. decisions for his own self-interest. Now, could you explain to our audience who's listening to this right now what you mean specifically by a me-first mentality?
0: Right. Well, you know, as I mentioned the book was inspired by the fact that in 2008, you know, there was this big meltdown where we saw what happened on Wall Street affected Main Street. It affected our health, our hopes, our health you know, our, our care. And then it went from the US to, I think it was, you know, the Greece and, and Iceland and the Gulf States and all around the world. Huge mess, huge fallout. And i had never wanted to write a book. I'd never wanted to be an author. So, but I, 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 like many people, scratching my head going, what allowed this to happen? And Really, you know, when it comes to communication, you want to be able to distill any idea down to something in its essence, something that's very, very simple that everyone can relate to because that gives it scale and accessibility. And for me, it was boiling it down to the idea of me first, which is, you know, this profit-for-profit's sake mentality. The, the, The business practices, the banking practices at the time were such that, you know, anything was possible if it made somebody else some money even at that person's expense and that house of cards was built such that when it all came tumbling down it took everybody with it so me first really means in any decision in terms of your role at you know at work in terms of the role your business plays and in terms of the impact on other people's lives you put yourself first largely at the cost of others, at the expense of others, and also the environment. So you're you're sort of, damn the consequences, winner takes all, I'm going to claw over the back of everyone.
1: I I like that that thought process of winner take all. And I've been thinking about this a lot. And the the thing that comes to my mind when you think about capitalism is the game Monopoly. If you have human beings that are playing Monopoly and trading at will with no regulations and no um you know enforcement's to to be equitable one person always takes all the money that's how right. you win the game and that right. is in theory capitalism so uh, the the winner take all mentality is something that i feel as a reflection of society and i feel as is a, a reflection of a self interest now you make a distinction in the book though that there's a, dif- a difference between self-interest and selfishness.
0: Yeah, let me speak to that. I'm going to object to something, Kevin. Yeah, yeah object. When you said that capitalism really is about that winner-takes-all mentality, I don't think in its heart and its origins that capitalism is all about that. Mm. Yes, Milton Friedman you know, has spoke long at, at length about you know, the, the number one responsibility of any company or its board is to the a fiduciary duty to the shareholders. Give the shareholders as much money as you can and that makes everything else excusable. And obviously, that's being revisioned now by Larry Fink at BlackRock, the CEOs of the Business Roundtable and more. And I actually do think that capitalism had a very different intent in the first place, which was you know, to unlock opportunity, to leverage competitiveness, to you know, lift prosperity for everybody. But I do think in the last several decades, we've lost sight of that. And we've become sort of so enamored at our ability to manipulate the system because people—it's—it's it's opaque. Other people can't see how it's working. You blind them with complex bank documents that are impenetrable. So much so that you know people have been taken for a ride. So I do think the the intent of capitalism is more just than the practices that we've seen over the last several decades in many cases. Notwithstanding that. I do draw that distinction in the book because I think it's naive to think anybody's going to go out in the world and just go, oh, I'm just going to do good and, and, you know, I'm not going to think about myself. That's not how we're wired. There's a healthy self-interest. I want to look after my family. I want to pay my mortgage. I want to get ahead. I want to take a holiday, whatever that looks like for you, depending on where you are in the world. But at the same time, the line gets blurred with selfishness which is really I'm this winner-takes-all mentality, which is mm. I'm going to take as much as for myself as I can, irrespective of the consequences. But here's the funny thing about it all. The people that think that they are doing themselves the greatest justice at the expense of others are actually hurting themselves more than anybody else. Mm. And here's why. Capitalism, our social ecosystem, society at large, can only thrive if everybody is, you know, feeding into it in a way that enables everyone to thrive. And what we're seeing right now is a breakdown of the capitalist ecosystem, where the disparity of wealth is such, and the way we're treating the planet is such, that the system is breaking down. The same way in the natural ecosystem, we're treated it so poorly, ocean plastics, ocean acidification, climate crisis, carbon, all these different things, that the system is breaking down. And so here's the funny old thing about it, and this is the reason I write around Right about we first, is that if you really want to be selfish in the sense of ensuring that you've got the most viable path for long-term sustained prosperity, you will not take profit at the cost of the integrity of the larger system itself. If the system breaks down, everybody suffers. If the system is strong and resilient, everybody can thrive. And I think we've overplayed our hand in the current practice of capitalism and the way that we've treated the planet and then now the way we have treated each other, which is why you see all of these crazy things showing up in terms of disparity of wealth or the very, very necessary, you know, protests around Black Lives Matter and all the issues that fall out of that. So there's a healthy self interest and those who think that they're getting ahead by being selfish are actually hurting themselves because they're eroding the integrity of the whole ecosystem
1: that makes business and society possible. It's a great answer. And I just want to read an excerpt from your book. I I really want to kind of tie this into the podcast. I mean, kind of bring in some excerpts and one of the quotes, uh, it's italicized, it says the dilemma we face in today's world is that all competing self-interests are increasingly selfish, turning the practice of capitalism into a clash of me first agendas, each seeking to fulfill only his, her or its own needs. Right. It's interesting. The I think it's all bollocks. Who wrote that? Doesn't make any yeah, sense at yeah. all. <laughs> no, exactly. the The point I want to make is this: is you know, I I don't think business owners wake up in the morning and say, "Hey, I want to destroy humanity. I want to right. destroy the environment." I think you know, it's in coal and, and fossil fuels' best interest to provide as cheap energy as possible to people to thrive and make their own decisions and help them afford things and necessities. I think it's been like that for a long time. Now we get to this point in the 1960s where this environmental movement becomes this increasingly popular opinion of a collective interest. However, there's a big difference to me between collective interest and self interest. Whereas the collective, you're referring to companies in this sake, almost as people themselves, when in reality, it's, it's much more interconnected and much more complex than that. Uh, whereas, right. you know, take like Carl Jung. You Know a psychologist uh, and philosopher who says, you know, uh, the growth of somebody comes from uh, what was the word uh, suppression and like fulfillment and potential? What was the words I, I wrote down here today? Uh, suffering and responsibility. All right? Why do humans make decisions? Why did you want to have this we first mentality? Well, you got that call from your father or your mother yep. and said, Dad's dead, right? It's a suffering now, you feel responsible. It's why I go to walk late last night to get coffee because I'm suffering because I need to get my coffee in the morning and I need to be responsible. Feeling potential, feeling fulfillment is the, the ownership of responsibility. So how does one turn a, a, collect, a, a, a self-interested society into a collective self-interest around something such as climate change?
0: Yeah that's a big question and let me back up for a second there because you know not everyone is on in the same position on the playing field those people in charge prior to the 60s and beyond the 60s in charge of those large oil and gas companies and others you know had the benefit of perspective that not every one of us out in the world have you know someone walking around the street with a uh, you know a, a retail job or something doesn't get the intel on the impact of those industries on the rest of the world and they're not as well informed perhaps especially you know when the 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 internet wasn't as widely adopted as it is today and so i I would call out those leaders of those captains of industry and say for a long time you've had a better perspective on the cost of a lot of the industries and practices you're doing and you're actually finding that in all these class action lawsuits and so on that they actually suppressed information they paid off scientists to provide misinformation and so on so but all of that is to say Everyone out there for a long time, I think we're guilty of this false conceit where, oh, you know, it's not my problem or my little life can't really make a difference. But the fact is this we are all intimately connected and mutually, you know, codependent, whether we like it or not. My life affects your life. The choice, what what product I buy affects somebody else. The products that a company makes affect everybody else. That knock on effect, that impact, is now self-evident to everybody because we're aware of climate. We're aware of plastics in the ocean. We have day after day this awareness that we're all complicit. And one of the things I object to about this very positive idea of stakeholder capitalism that everyone's talking about right now mm. is that in most cases it's, it's, it's expressed in terms of a company must be responsible to all stakeholders in society, not just the shareholder. Why do why do I find a problem with that? It's because it's not just that everyone should share in the benefits of capitalism. Everyone should share in the responsibilities of capitalism. Like it doesn't matter how good a company CEO is going to be if consumers are still going to go and buy crap that pollutes the planet. Or it doesn't matter if consumers want something different, but there's, you know, the companies are doing the the same best, you know, the same practices that made the problem in the first place. We are all on the hook now. So just that's as context to answer your question, which is how do we create this big collect, collective shift in thinking and behavior? And there's a lot of thinking about this. The Harvard Kennedy School and lots of other professors there and have done a lot of kind of research into what motivates large scale shifts in consumer behavior and what is the role of a public narrative around a given issue, whether it's anti-smoking, recycling, Gun control to shift thinking and behaviour, but to put it in sort of um, at its simplest, you know, there's the awareness issue. We need to be aware of the cost and consequence of what of the choices we're making, so that we're all aware. You know, uh, you know, COVID has been an enormous reminder of that. And then we need actually not to be sort of um, penalised or in a, approached in a punitive sense. You have to change, but rather we need to be inspired. You know, by we need to be given agency to try that. And then we need to be equipped to take action. So awareness, um, you know, that inspiration, and then then equipping people to do it. And I think what you're seeing right now, especially with the younger demographics, like millennials and Gen Z, they are coming to the world and saying, we're not even waiting for your equipment. We're not waiting for you, the uh, institution. We're not waiting for you for the, the brand to fix it. I've got $5,000. I've got a thousand friends. We're going to go out there and do something about it. And so we're seeing kind of an evolution in that as well. So it takes certain strategic kind of um, approaches to mobilize large numbers of people to shift what they're thinking and doing. But increasingly, you're seeing the
1: younger generations take take responsibility for it themselves. How do you see the younger generations taking responsibility for themselves? Because I say a counter argument to that would be a lot of the, the younger generations that I know – are all on social media and they're all stating their own opinions. They're reflecting kind of what we talk about a lot. You know, we need to make better decisions. We can do this. However, if you look at the group, you know, the the average of my friends, a lot of them can't take care of themselves. And and there's there's something about that that is a little scary for me in that sense that, like you said, with social media, you skip a, a rock across the water. There's no really deep dive in factual evidence. And there's also no intention. There's no applicable drive uh, to make these fundamental changes as a collective.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You, you've got to get some better friends. No, I'm not kidding. I've got no, you know, I, so, I read something I really like from Mike Tyson yesterday. Someone, I don't know where I saw it, but he said social media has allowed a lot of people to say nasty things about other people without getting punched in the face. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Like you kind of you're off the hook on so many fronts to your point about skipping across the water on issues. And I think, you know, there's a couple of things. Firstly, it's dangerous to talk in such broad terms about young people because there's so many specific Sorry. niches within them and mindsets and 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 so on. But according to a lot of the data we've read from Pew and Gallup and many other folks, these younger generations come to the world with a different point of view and it's logical. That point of view is hey, I was born and I grew up in a world where all I heard about was the mess we're in. And so I'm deeply committed to fix it. And so I care less about the things I own and I don't want those things to own me but instead I want to have experiences and I want to make a difference and I'll get paid less at a job if that job aligns with my values. And again, that's oversimplifying, but that's that's a shift. I mean, you know, for myself and my generation, I look back and I remember the 80s, the 90s, it was all about being cool, acquiring stuff, greed is good, whatever it might be. And, you know, I think now the, the consequences of that has played out all around us. So with these younger demographics, I, I think- They're going to do it in and of themselves anyway, A, because they have no choice, B, because that's how they're wired because of their experience, the world that they've grown up on, and C, solving for a lot of these big issues are the biggest marketplace opportunities you've seen in, in anyone's lifetime. I mean, I can give you example after example of companies that have looked at a problem and are now solving for it, and it turns out to be a massive marketplace opportunity. For example, Tesla and Elon Musk, not so much a millennial, maybe three millennials. I don't know, Gen Z, three Gen Zs, whatever he is. But he looked and said, unsustainable transportation leads to an unsustainable planet. So he's going to take on the most in, kind of inert, indentured sort of industry, like you know the auto industry with combustion engines and got absolutely beaten up in the first few years. And sure, he's a character that does crazy things and so on. But now, even this week, even today, the value of Tesla going through the roof, as it's looking at being listed on the Nasdaq or S&P, whatever it's going to be, and you know the whole industry has been turned on its head and are now competing to be EV, alternative energy, you know, um, competitors. So all of that is to say, I think the younger generation is going to do it for those three reasons, and then they're going to solve for these issues at scale, and it's going to, be going to it's going to lead to very a lot of. Um, opportunities to generate wealth while solving for these great challenges
1: I, I think you know we've talked a lot about the younger generation including them in the conversation yeah. uh one of the and i bring up carl Jung because his theories were um basically in tandem with uh the movie the lion king Everyone's seen the lion king and simba you know loses his father he's he is um disavowed by by scar he is sent to uh, hang out with Ramon and uh, I forget the meerkat's name, and and through his upbringing, his childish, uh, the song Hakuna Matata comes on. You know, no Hakuta worries, Hakuna Matata, right? So no, no worries, right? And so you're in this this stage of adolescence, and I've heard it time and time again. Business owners come on the show and they didn't have that point of reflection until something. What's the word yeah. I used again? Suffering yeah. happened. Yep and then this happens and you have to take responsibility so i think we will see a lot more responsibility however it comes from this though this is the question here yeah. is, it envi- is it an environmental pressure or is it social pressure and mm-hmm. i think there's you could argue for both but i would argue with the lion king story it's not until the the female lion comes back does simba actually change his ways it's the social pressure you can't take care of me you're living in this adolescent world now you need to grow up and become a male, you know, uh, lion. So Sam, yes. the question to you is, uh, what? How do environmental and social factors play in the role of self-interest and selfishness?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a good question. You know, I had the same experience. I was a self-important, self-focused ad guy, who, you know, got the end of a successful career unfulfilled, wondering what the hell's going on. And then I had the passing of my father and so on to really wake me up. If it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have woken up. So I don't get a medal for doing work in and around this area with We First, my company now. I really, I had to be slapped in the side of the head to to get there. Mm. For young people, I think they're predisposed that way because, I mean, all the information that we get now, imagine being a young person today where every single day we get this daily diet of information. I can't even find my phone. My goodness, look at me. Go, go me with no phone. Like away, every too. single day, these darn things are just pouring into their eyeballs like goblets, you know, filling them up with information, including what with the challenges around climate and everything else. And then it's being p- shared peer to peer through all these social platforms. So, all of that is to say that. It's unavoidable. They are so intimately aware of the challenges we face. In fact, I think it was Peter Diamontis who read the book Abundance said, you know, the world isn't getting worse. Our awareness of the trouble we're in is getting better. Mm. And that's what these young people have had. Mm. And then in a more tactical way on a day-to-day basis, you know, they are witnessing bushfires in California and Australia. They're witnessing hurricanes and tornadoes elsewhere in the country. They're seeing floods in Venice. They're seeing the tangible... um evidence of climate crisis amongst others in their lifetime, not from the position of someone who's 50 or 60 or 70 looking back, but someone who's 10, 15, 20, 25 looking forward saying, what does this mean for my future? And so what is in their best self-interest is not to gorge themselves on trying to get a car or a ski lodge. It's to save the planet, which enables them to even have a viable future. And the meaning of that transcends the meaning of some silly little object that generations before them have overpriced. And instead, they're sort of seeing value in these issues. So you look at this year alone, above and beyond climate crisis, COVID has taught us how precious life is. I've had some friends this week who I care very much about um, contract COVID and being very, very ill. And my wife and I talk about it and go, damn, life is fragile. Like, and I think everyone's had the conversation where, man, after this, assuming there's an after this, we're all just going to go out and have experiences and stuff. And I just, I just care about my friends, and I just want to be with my family. Um, and this, just, so these younger kids, then they have Black Lives Matter, and they're like, this is not okay. It is tearing down our country, the very fabric of what we care about and our values. So just think of the diet of information they have. Look at the circumstances around them. Look at the immediacy of COVID and Black Lives Matter. And these social and environmental issues are tasking them directly to solve for it. And in terms of how they force rank what they prioritize in their life, getting an accounting job at the big four or a big car is well below enabling a future for themselves and their family. So that's
1: why I think they care. There's no doubt about that. And I think what I took away from that too is when environmental visualizations multiplied by social pressures does create that change on a social platform the only not problem the only thing i'm just a little skeptical about is uh, where does this go from here when you have so many people watching the same things and if you have a different opinion you are then pressured to think like that or does not respond to me that's absolutism that's what the beginnings of what could be You know what what separated you know east and west germany um you know it's 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 the the, it could potentially be seen as a left-leaning or progressive or marxist approach when you have so many people being pressured to react the same way and to determine right versus wrong how do you react to that
0: yeah i mean i think i would phrase it differently i think the polarization in the country right now which has been so clear in the election is one of the many byproducts of the algorithmic polarization thanks to social media where i have an opinion x and therefore i look at content that reflect that you know confirms opinion x and therefore the algorithm re- rewards me with more content that fortifies that opinion x and so right, right. the world has got further apart and you know people have been so vitriolic towards each other on both sides of you know the political spectrum this year but i look at it and just go Everybody is just acting on the strength of the information they've been given. Mm. And that information is night and day, depending on where you live, what information you've sourced, and so on and so on, many factors. And so, you know, I think what is going to happen is social media at some point is going to have to course correct. And I remember I wrote a book about social media and was very bullish on, you know, the, its potential to be a transformative and positive effect in the world. But I think it's unsustainable to do something that either compromises an individual's life or the well being of the collective indefinitely, irrespective of how much money is being made or how much lobbyists are being paid in the back room. I think at some point there is a course correction that goes on, whether it takes the form of people just digitally detoxing. Mm. Whether it's the sort of atrophy of a certain channel that just doesn't feel good anymore. You've heard that a lot around Facebook where it just makes me feel worse, not better. You know, Whether it's the rise of an alternative platform that allows you to feel better and is a little bit more positive. And also, I think there's something fundamental to human nature. And I don't mean to sound naive, but I do believe that within human nature, we are innately positive. We do want the best for each other. We have a profound connection to nature, irrespective of how much time we spend in it or not. And I think our survival instincts will kick in and eventually we will move away from those things that are not serving us in a positive way. We will just unconsciously move away. And people have probably heard during the election, oh my God, I can't watch the news anymore. It just makes me sad or sick or mad. Absolutely. And then you hear it from someone else you hear it from someone else. And then someone says, oh yeah, I'm not watching the news anymore. I'm digital detoxing or whatever it is. And yeah, so am I, so am I. These are those dynamics playing out on a smaller level, but I think on a larger scale. And the reason, you know, you see folks at Twitter, the CEOs of Twitter and um, Facebook up on the Hill getting interrogated by the Senate and so on right now because of their monopoly on mind share of people is that they're trying to wake them up to the responsibility they have in and around this issue. Because if you have 3 billion people around the planet at your fingertips algorithmically to leverage, you know, addictive dynamics, as we saw explained in that movie, The Social Dilemma, you've got a huge responsibility because the future is a story we write every day. Mm. And if people are manipulating the narrative and feeding people information, which serves different agendas,
1: that's, a hu- that's potentially very dangerous. Well, as you say in your book, you know, marketers know people's self-interest. And I'll take a little quote out of here as I continue to do this. Uh, Every act of healthy self-interest taken too far becomes destructive selfishness. Now, this is referring to the dark side of capitalism. Sounds a little bit like what you were just explaining with social media.
0: Yeah, it is true. I mean, you look at the excesses of social media where, you know, I think in the early days, we all wanted to connect with our friends. And then we wanted to show the sonogram of our baby. Exactly. And then we wanted to show us partying, wow! you know, beer bottle, whatever. And then we're like, Oh no, our employers are looking at Facebook. And then we're all like, Oh, how are you Hear Us at the, you know, the the, the bridal shower. Do, do you know what I mean? We kind of had to oh, yeah. manage and message and the privacy issue crept backwards and forwards with disingenuous statements about what's going to be protected and what's not. And, and all of those issues that are very public and in discussion um, right now. But I think, you know, I think we have to take responsibility for it. And I know that's not easy because at the end of the film, The Social Dilemma, mm. you saw the the folks who are actually building the algorithms that made it so addictive say to us, you've got to step away. And they said, you know, the titans of industry in Silicon Valley do not let their kids have these technologies and social media because it's not good for them. So we can't abdicate our own responsibility. We've got to step away from them themselves. And unfortunately, one of the downsides of COVID is we have, like our whole lives have been funneled into screens. And so now we're looking at the real world through the lens of this focus screen. It's almost like we had the cinema screen, then we had the flat screen TV. Now we've got the smartphone, which is in our pocket. And they've kind of said, we're going to take your attention and just focus it in here. Mm. And now, if you look at the number of hours people spend looking at screens each day, a third, if not half of their lives is experienced, perceived, informed, through the lens of a, of a three by four inch screen. It's astonishing. Right. So I think, you know, we've got a lot to answer for. And I think, you know, um, I think humanity, you know, in a larger sense, and that's not to say that everyone has equal access to these tools, really needs to remember what it's forgot, which is, is, you know, it's the original face time. We get to see each other and it's the original time that we spend in nature, which is so restorative for us. And just one thing about capitalism um that you mentioned you know in excess it becomes you know dangerous there's this self-interest there's some wisdom we always forget the answers we're looking for are right in front of us they're in nature they're an in indigenous people who had a symbiotic relationship to the natural world and, and here's what i mean if you read a bit about what the way that aboriginal people native americans <clears throat> eskimos Indigenous people all around the world, how they framed their relationship to each other in the world, it really was codependent. It was symbiotic. Mm. And so, you know, in the Amazon, um, the tribes would speak of how if somebody took more than they needed, they were considered mad because the way that the system worked was on the idea of sufficiency. I take what's sufficient for me, for our community, and give back to nature in equally compelling ways. But anything more than sufficiency atrophies the entire system. It breaks down the ecosystem on which everyone depends. So somebody who would take more than they needed was considered mentally ill. So to a large extent, all of us are absolutely bonkers because we're destroying the ecosystem, natural and capitalist or social, on which our very lives depend. And now we're at this watershed moment where people are going, "Oh, we've got to course correct, or we're out of business." It,
1: it's an interesting point you bring up, uh, and we've talked about that a few times on the show. This symbiotic relationship—you know, how uh, do companies uh, be symbiotic? How do uh, you know in a mutualistic relationship um, between you know society, the environment, uh, and the company's profits themselves? Uh, You mentioned it a few times in the book about an example, I believe it was from from a Duke study, uh, where they placed a bag of chips, let's just call it, or towels, I think it was, uh, two towels versus another towels, And they put a sign that said, this towel is fair trade. We pay pay our employees a fair wage. And the price was just a little bit higher in the sales, and those went up. So the argument then becomes this. So is it in a company's best self-interest? To do the right thing based on the consumer response?
0: It's a very complicated issue because, A, some people leverage that insight to do it disingenuously. And, you know, purpose washing, green washing, cause washing, local washing, woke washing, you know, so you've got to make sure people are doing it authentically. And then fair trade and USDA and non GMO and all of these titles out there, there's a lot of debate as to what they really mean. Because there's lots of different vested interests behind them where they may be solving for part of the problem, but they're not solving for the whole sort of ecosystem, not providing an ecosystem-wide solution. And so, you know, there's a lot of nuance within this discussion. But if the presumption is that there is some way to identify and validate with transparency and accountability in terms of measurable results that a product does better for people, and the planet, then the research today shows that not only will they be willing to pay more for it, but the economies of scale are there now. They weren't there five, 10 years ago when I started writing, but now there's enough people in the marketplace rewarding them enough to you know, allow the business to grow enough that you can reach volumes of sufficient scale that there's economies in terms of price. And I, and I, and I do wanna say that this conversation is not static. These are not black and white issues. It's all been evolving over the last 10 years. And so the viabilities of these solutions change depending on how mature the conversations become, how aware and informed and engaged various stakeholders are, consumers, employees. And what's so exciting about right now is you see business leaders, investors, employees, and consumers all saying, we want to do something differently. And until you get that requisite coalition of stakeholders that provide a viable alternative to the way things have been done that has all the stakeholders involved, you can't really compete with the old system. You need all the pieces of the engine in place to even have an engine to replace the old one. And up till now, we've had a lot of the pieces at different times, but we haven't had all the stakeholders in place asking for it. And that's why it's so exciting right now.
1: Uh, I think what's interesting too is the difference between integrating impact into your organization versus giving back uh, donating your your proceeds to a social cause you go to the store you say they ask you do you want to round up to give five percent back all those add up to a nonprofit organization right but now what we're finding it's it's not good enough where do you kind of draw the line between those two and for business owners maybe listen to this or anyone in business listening to this what would your advice be to them
0: well, so what? So what do you mean for business owners? What's the question? So I'll say another if, one.
1: If they have, an, if they have a, a static business right now, let's just say they're uh, your, your local mom and pop shop. They're selling mm-hmm. um, uh, hardware. They're selling gloves. Right. You know, how do you integrate impact into your organization? Or would you recommend, you know, them doing like a, a proceeds give back model? What's sure. your point on that?
0: The approach really is um, foundational. And what I mean by that is we always look at a business, whether you're just five people in a hardware store or or 10,000 people, from the foundational purpose of the organization. Why does it exist? So for a hardware store, it might be to empower um, local communities to build a brighter future for themselves, just making it up. In which case, what do they do? They relate to people a certain way. They make sure that they've, everything they need is in place. They only source from responsible, you know, uh, green products for the for those for, you know to be sold. So it goes to their core business, the stuff of what they do. It's not the good programs they do off to the side. It's supply chain. Mm. It's how they treat their employees. It's the products they sell. It's how they treat their customers. All that stuff. And then, if in addition they want to give back in some way. For example, they work with the local Boys and Girls Club bringing kids in to train them in a, in a trade so they've got a skill. Mm. Or they go out there and work with Habitat with, for Humanity and supply equipment to the local chapter to build houses for um, you know, homeless people or, or whatever the situation might be. Um, or they may do 5% of their proceeds go to the lo- local charity that they particularly care about, which might be the environment. But those programs are just one of many ways that they've got to bring that core purpose to life throughout the value chain of their business. Mm. So it starts with consciously selecting their suppliers. It then moves to HR and employees and, and how they build a culture and how they treat everyone. It then goes to product innovation and, and what products they sell. It then goes to, yes, marketing and the stories they tell. And then it also goes out to the impact that they have in the world, these programs, one for one, 5% of gross sales, net profit, whatever it might be.
1: And so what you're saying is if, if, if you go to the purpose of your organization and you, you look at that, you reflect on that, and then you want to, like you said, you know, help build skills throughout the value chain. Um, and incorporate that purpose throughout the value chain, you're saying that would be a selfish action to benefit you know, the larger sum.
0: Um, no, I think it would be healthy self-interest. Healthy I think self-interest. that you want to grow your business right. and make as much money as you can so that you can open another hardware store and then open four and five and then have a national chain without ever losing sight that your core purpose is to equip local communities to build a better future for themselves got it
1: well put uh now Simon, i'll wrap this up uh one of my my favorite quotes is uh at the end you know to make capitalism work again we need to update our understanding of self-interest as i just you know messed up on self-interest versus self uh selfishness no worries. to make capitalism work again we need to update our understanding of self-interest to fit the world we live in Uh, We're a giant, we're in a giant car heading toward a brick wall and everyone's arguing over where they're going to sit. Closing words, closing remarks. What do we have to do? Giving me PTSD
0: about writing this all that years ago. I was like, oh, flashbacks. But you know, what's really interesting and it was nice, you know, the book was a New York Times bestseller and voted best marketing book of the year by Strategy and Business. And they said this thing, the opening line of their sort of assessment was, We First is that rare marketing book that's as visionary as it is prescient. And you know, just through good luck or, you know, whatever, uh, you know, a lot of the things in the book have come to pass and continue to do so. And I think that analogy or that metaphor is still true. We are in a car heading towards a cliff and we are arguing about where to, where to sit. And that's not my metaphor. I've heard it used by other people before. We are arguing where to sit when, if you really look at the issues that we're trying to solve for, they don't care. COVID doesn't care about your job, where you wanted to go on holiday, whether you're going to see your family or not on Thanksgiving. The climate is equally dispassionate about whether it's going to visit bushfires on your region. So whether we like it or not, we have to wake up together at scale with urgency if we are going to solve for these issues. And currently we're not doing that. I didn't answer your question though. What was your question?
1: Well, just, you know, uh, in order to, yeah, he said it's you need to update our understanding of self-interest to fit the world we live in now you know what what would be your closing remarks to have people rethink their their way of self-interest
0: you know i think if we can embrace the idea that our personal self-interest is best served by protecting and nurturing the integrity of the whole if we're the parts if we make sure the sum is working then That's how we best serve our self-interest, because capitalism is the most successful economic model in human history, and it has transformed the lives of so many people. And people are better off today than they ever have been, if you actually look at the statistics, despite all the suffering. But it's not being fairly or evenly shared, the prosperity of that. And that's having huge consequences, which lead to civil unrest and Black Lives Matter protests and all these other things around us. In which case, if we want a life in which everyone can earn a, a good living, that there is a thriving middle class for business to sell to, in which, you know, we have a sustainable future to look forward to, then we need to look at our self-interest in the context of the well-being of the whole, not just ourselves. And I think a lot of us are at the point of awareness, but I don't think enough of us have changed our behaviors. For example, I gave up having a car two and a half years ago in L.A. I don't have a car. That's not easy, and it's not convenient, but it's great. You know, and if I get stuck somewhere, I'll try and request a, an electric vehicle, and an Uber, or a Lyft, or something like that. But you know, I, I just I think we have to make conscious choices because we realize what's important if we are genuinely committed to the well-being of ourselves as a function of the well-being of all. That mm. would be what I might share.
1: Higher conscious uh, trumps selfishness, I would say maybe.
0: Yeah, I, ju- I just think we, we all know this. There's no rocket mm. science here. We're all connected, mm. you know, at a heart level, at a head level in our lives. And we're connected to the planet. You know, if we dump something in the, ocean, in, in the ocean or a river, that spoils it for everybody, not just ourselves and not just the animals, you know? So I think we're not really learning something new. I do think we're remembering what we forgot which is that we are deeply codependent. We are intimately connected. And currently, these forces are being used to work against us. Against us. If I hurt the system, it hurts others. And the connectivity, the interconnectedness of the system means that negative impact compounds. But equally, we can turn that on its head and say, if I take a regenerative approach and restore this and renew that, That will have a positive effect, leveraging those same connections, those same same dynamics. So let's just embrace our connectivity and sort of retool it in a positive sense. And I think we'll be surprised how much we can achieve how quickly because of that compounding effect and also because nature is extraordinary. I know that sounds trite, but its capacity for abundance, which we've seen during COVID when we stopped flying and we got off the road, how fishery populated rivers, how the skies were clearer, how animals came back into different areas. Nature is irrepressibly abundant and we give it, if we give it half a chance it will work with us
1: to actually solve for these
0: issues we face.
1: Well, I don't think we will ever forget how inspiring and, and knowledgeable you are on this topic. And We appreciate you coming back for number five of the Keep It Real series. Number five. And that's Simon Maywaring, the author of We First, uh, How Brands and Consumers Use Social Media to Build a Better World. Simon, had a pleasure speaking to you today, my friend. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And folks, if you don't want to miss episode six of the Real Leaders podcast, just head over to real-leaders.com podcast and click the thumbnail with Simon on it to RSVP your seat on the Keep It Real number six series with Simon Mainwaring, where you can ask questions and be a part of the show. Also, folks, if you haven't yet already subscribed to this channel, please do so so you are notified of more inspiring interviews with readers like Simon. And if you already are, thank you so much. And please, I'd love it if you could leave a review because I read all of them and it really helps the show improve and helps us understand what you all like about the guests that come on. That's it for me. Thanks for being a reader, leader and stay tuned for the next episode.